simply heart-expanding, mind-expanding in the best way, as we come to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, as Alan has said, we just um, we marvel at him, and that drives us to worship him. This morning's um, topic, as I studied for it, um, Honestly, a couple of times, actually more than a couple of times, I got headaches because it was just so uh, challenging to my little mind. And I wanted to ask, I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask you, how many of you heard, have heard a message on the unity or the simplicity of God? Really? Okay, two, oh, you guys. Okay, well, you guys can feel the questions uh, afterward, and that is so good. But I, I thought it was going to be unanimous, but I was proved wrong. At the point, just that uh, we're, for some of us, this is somewhat new territory. And uh, that's great, because we can be newbies together, and we can grow in the Lord. So let's come to our God. Lord God, you who are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, your wisdom, your power, your holiness, your justice, your truth. We come this morning because we love you, and we know that you have gathered us this day because you love us. We confess, Lord God, that our love often lacks zeal, because we do not rightly recognize your majesty, your might, and your mercy. We pray, Father, that you would move us in humility to be all the more in awe and wonder of all of your perfections, that we would trust you all the more, that we would live for your glory when we come to places where we think we know best rather than what you've revealed to us. Correct us, change us. Again, humble us and bless us in the wisdom in Christ Jesus that we would live to your glory. Father, as has been said, many are experiencing hard providence. We thank you that you are in control of all and that you sustain your people. We humbly ask for your tender mercies, for the afflicted, for the weak, for the struggling, for the perplexed. We thank you, Father, for the knowledge that our lives and our times are in your hands. So, Lord God, please use even this time, this teaching, to move us to love you all the more, to adore you, and stand firm in Christ Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, I'm getting to... Uh, I have the pleasure of getting to know more of you in Presbytery. I think um, this is our, I'm wearing uh, my first time at family camp, which is awkward to confess. And uh, I, a lot of you don't know me, although some of you have got to know me at this camp because uh, you know that I married well. Yes, I am the husband of the Grand Shepherdess. And um, while that's absolutely true, I have to admit, when, when John said that, um, publicly, and in Maureen's presence, I thought, there's going to be no living with her now. It's just, I mean, 
So anyway, um, but actually she's more sanctified than that. And so I would use that kind of a thing in a manipulative way, but she's, she's, more, she's bigger than that. So uh, praise God. Well, um, before I met Maureen, and I should say, as Lennis asked, uh, we have, I'll try not to boast, uh, we have four children, two grandchildren, and one on the way. And uh, all of our children have uh, graduated. Again, three are married. And um, thankfully, two are yet in California. So if you would please join me in prayer that the other two would return from Houston and Chicago, I would greatly appreciate that because um, I I shouldn't take too much time with this, but you know, as you look through the Old Testament, that the entrance into the garden was on the east side. The entrance to the tabernacle was on the east side. And you know that the entrance to the temple was on the east side. And so, yes, going westward is the godly direction. So if you would pray that my children would grow and uh, return west, it's not just Horace Greeley that said it, it's biblical. So i just just saying. Well, um, before I met Maureen, and uh, we married, and before we went to seminary, uh, we, yeah, we met... When within eight months, uh, we were married, and in another few months, we were in seminary. And then the Lord brought us to uh, Covenant of Grace in Oxnard, for which we are very thankful. But before all of that, I was a potter. I got to play with clay. How many, how many potters, or those who have at least sat down with a wheel, got, got dirty with some clay? Hand builders, we, all oh, right, very good. Okay, so you know of what I speak, and... Um, you know, as a, as a potter, I recognize I'm not the only, obviously, not even in here, not even in such a, a group, not the only potter. There's a lot of potters, and for those of you who, who don't know, there's more potters than you would realize around. Again, I was surprised uh, by that. And uh, there are a lot of types of potters. There are potters who do hand-building only. There are potters that only work on the wheel. There are potters that work with a kick wheel. I like an electric wheel where I've got a little electric pedal I can push on. It's like an accelerator. It makes my wheel spin better and I can be in control of the clay, I hope. And uh, there are potters that do um, special effects with either pit fire or wood fire or raku or chinos or salt glaze. And if you want to ask me about those after the break, it would be great. Uh, we can talk about that. So anyway, there's a, there's a lot of potters, and there's a lot of different types of potters. And if you've played with clay, you know that it's not easy. It can be challenging. I sit down to a wheel. Now, I've been, doing, I've been playing with clay for over 35 years. And each time I sit down, I realize that, okay, I, I need to think about what I want to make. And then I take my lump of clay, slam it on the wheel head, get the uh, wheel turning, the wheel head turning, um, use my, the force of my left hand to shape the clay into what looks like kind of a gum drop, so it's centered. And then I'll open it up and with the other hand and fingers pull on the wall. And so I'll get a cylinder and then I go and, and, and shape it according to the design that was in my mind. Now, I should just say that I'll probably never write a book on the simplicity or the unity of God. But if I ever write a book, it'll probably be 100 Ways to Kill a Pot. Because I've killed my share. Uh, something happens in between all the parts of my body and the disconnect between my mind and my 
hands, I can make so many mistakes. I can either have the wheel head go too fast, and that's a problem with my foot control. I can have uh, not keep my left arm firm enough so that I allow the clay to wobble. I can be uh, too quick in pulling the wall, and I can put, stick a finger right through the wall. And Like I say, 100, 100 ways, probably more than 100 ways uh, to kill a pot. And why do I say that? Well, you know the analogy in Scripture that both in Old Testament and New, the Lord God, our Creator, is described as a potter. We know that He is perfectly all wise. Maybe just why would why would it be a fitting analogy to speak of God as the Potter? Any volunteer? He is a Creator. He f- yes. Right. I mean, uh, the Hebrew word, uh, we, you all know Adam. Most of, many of you might not know that the Hebrew word for earth or clay is Adamah. Guess where we came from. Um, so right, God took of the earth to fashion us and shape us according to his infinite wisdom and his all-wise uh, purpose to make a people for himself and to rule over all. Well, When we talk about God, we recognize that there's appropriate connections, correlations. He is like water in the sense that he knows his design and he has the power, the force, and the control to fashion and shape what he has intended. When I sit down as a potter, that may happen and it may not happen. And the reason, if if it doesn't work, if it doesn't happen, it's because there's a lot going on or not going on between here and here. I'm built up of component parts. There's a lot of different components in me of which I am comprised. And the various disconnects between all of those pieces parts are opportunities for failure and mistake. But we hear, and the value One of the values of the doctrine of the unity and the simplicity of God is that he is a God, as we hear from the Westminster Standards, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, and we'll get to that later this morning, without body, parts, or passions, immutable and incomprehensible, and it goes on. We might not think about how, how the importance of the unity of God, the simplicity of God, but the Belgic Confession, actually its opening affirmation is, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God. Now, maybe you think, well, that's kind of odd. Why would you call God simple? I mean, I think of myself as simple. Um, In fact, when when Mark, I got that email from Brother Schroeder asking me to speak on the simplicity of God, I thought, well, I guess he he knows I'm I'm simple-minded, and I would like to be godly, so the simplicity of God, maybe there's a correlation there, but... So we think of simplicity in a sense of rather dim, fairly slow. But that's not at all what the simplicity of God is about. 
It's that he is of one divine essence. There are no pieces, parts, components of the living God. He is pure being. I liked, uh, it's just been so fun to sit where you are this morning and hear other pastors speak wisely about the majesty and the might and the mercy of our God. I appreciated um, Pastor Moresh uh, saying that God is the true being. All, of, we are, all, else, all else is becoming. We have potential because we will change. We are either, for some of you, you are growing and you haven't hit your stride yet in life, in, in physical strength or maturity. You're still on the way up, as it were. And there are others of us that are changing in other ways. And that's one of the downside of pieces, parts, right? Every mechanic knows this. So where there are parts, there's friction. And where there's friction, there's disintegration. And you and I experience that. And we will continue to experience that until the Lord God returns to bring us home to glory. Where there, where there is no sorrow or sign, there is no death. No tears. We can trust our good and perfect God uh, for that. So when we think about the simplicity of God, the unity of God, there are two main aspects of this. And let me read. Um, I, could have, I could read from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, but I'll, basically that will be included as I turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and read verses 28 to 34. You will remember there was an occasion where Jesus meets with scribes and Pharisees, and of course they're regularly asking him questions, and you have to give them at least credit. They know who to go to for wisdom. You and I should take that tip always. Here are the gospel from Mark 8 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which command is the most important? Of all, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment? He reminds the scribes and the Pharisees of the great call of faith to Israel, that declaration of the fidelity of our covenant-keeping God and the call to you and me, his people, to love him loyally, knowing that The Lord God has given himself for us. We are to give ourselves to him wholeheartedly. And it's tempting to want to just 
sit down and do a, a message on Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, but let's just take some key points. Here, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one here. I hope you know that that is not simply a call to listen with a view to growing in knowledge. It's not simply a call to, to learn. To hear is to listen with a view to obeying and to act. That's why it's so wonderful when the Psalms tell us that our God hears our prayers. We know it's not simply that he's taking in, he's, at least he's open for receiving information, but he is hearing with a view to acting because he is so, so good and he is so good. So the call to you and me is here. And I trust, and I'm thankful, the exhortation's been made, and I believe it's been received, that the call here to you has been to hear, to listen, with more than a view to simply adding more knowledge that you might go back to friends and family and wow them with some uh, Latin phraseology, and we'll get to some of that later, for those of you who really like that. Uh, we'll get to some of that. Uh, and it's, it's fun, and, and as one professor told me, uh, Latin is good for the soul, and I'm unsure if that was because um, trial brings about perseverance. And perseverance. It's one of those. Maybe, maybe that's it. I don't think that's what he meant. Maybe it was. Um, but uh, we're called to hear with a view to more than simply racking up more theological acumen. We're called to hear that we would live properly before the Lord. We're to hear him. We're to know that he is the Lord. And of course, that is just so full of the fact not only that our God is the covenant-keeping God. He is not a God. He's not simply God. He's not simply the one who made everything. He made his people to be in relationship with himself. And what's staggering is that he has promised that he will not allow anything to interrupt or sever that relationship. You and I stumble and stray, but God did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, that we would be righteous in Jesus Christ. So when the Shema, when the call to hear, O Israel, that the Lord, the Lord God is one, there's a call to recognize that there is no other God And, of course, that was a lesson that frequently was lost on Israel because so often they chased after other gods. And the fact that what is being addressed here immediately is the fact that there is one God, not many gods, is that in Mark 12, when the young scribe hears Jesus declare that Shema, that call to faith in the covenant-keeping God, His response is, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. Now, there's another aspect of understanding the unity, the simplicity of God. But let's get this in place first. That there is but one God. I trust that you know that idolatry is not something that passed out um, in Neolithic period. Idolatry didn't cease even in the 16th century. The Apostle Paul tells us where there is covetousness, there is idolatry. 
So the call to recognize that the Lord is one, that there is only one true and living God, is the call for you and me to put off all idolatry, to put off all covetousness. It's staggering to think, I just heard recently uh, that um, Francis Xavier, you don't need to know his name, but he is a famous Roman Catholic uh, priest, and he served as a confessor for 40 years, and his testimony was that in 40 years as a priest, he had never heard anyone confess the sin of covetousness. And um, I wish we could all say that we don't need to confess covetousness, but too often, too regularly, we do. And why do we because of conception of God? We don't trust him enough. We are not in awe of his perfection. If you know and my, my prayer for me, as I've been studying this, and my prayer for you, as you continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is that you'll be so captivated by his character, his wonder-working power to, for your salvation and his glory, that you would look at other things that you may have been tempted to covet, and you'd say, Why? Why would I go for something less when I can have him? He who loves me and has loved me from before the foundation of the world. So let us grow in, in adoring him, that we would rightly live before him, putting off idolatry, putting off covetousness. Well, as I mentioned, there's more than one aspect of this doctrine of the simplicity of God, of the unity of God, and it has to do not with the fact that there is, there is only one God, although it's, of course, related to it, because everything's related to it. Have you noticed, and I'll try not to take too much time in this parenthesis, but have you noticed that it's almost impossible for the pastors, as they've been talking about the various attributes of God, to keep from talking about other attributes and what other ministers would be saying. Um, I, um, you know, it, again, it's, it's sinful pride that thinks, Brother Schroeder, he stole my thunder with that great quote uh, from Spurgeon. That's what I was going to conclude on. And, and trust me, I'm going to conclude with it. Uh, and because, because Pastor Grell said, do it. It's worth it. And he's right. So you'll hear that word, Willie, if, I, if I'm mindful of time. Um, um, but last night, um, the, uh, the infinity of God could not be separated from the spirituality of God, which is coming up in the next hour. Um, Pastor Gorell, in his handling of the attributes of God, couldn't keep, and rightly so, from speaking about the essence of the one true God as being a complex and a symbol. He is all his attributes. And that's what this second aspect of the unity of God is about. He's not, he's not a composite being. He's not, like, he's not like me, the weak, failing, struggling potter. Well, I, I, do, I have managed to make some nice pots. But anyway, the point is I don't always accomplish what I want at the wheel or with the kiln. But God is, is sovereign. And he... 
he accomplishes all his, his holy will. And he is able to do that because he is a simple being. Not slow, but perfect. He's not a, he's not a being with a number of attributes stuck to him. And here again is something I think that I know I need to repent of, and maybe you need to repent of as well. We think of God not in the perfection that he is, but we think of God as part love, part justice, part holiness, part mercy, part patience, part compassion, And sometimes we pit these attributes against one another. And I think it's when we do that that we think, Lord, in this case, in this circumstance, at this hour, I think I'm closer to my situation than you are. I think I know best how to handle this. But as we are convinced and convicted of the perfection of our God, that he doesn't have these character qualities in conflict with one another, but he holds all in perfection. He is his attributes. His attributes are him. God's love. God's love is perfect in its wisdom, its holiness, its justice, its goodness, its mercy. God's justice is perfect in its holiness, its compassion, its love, its goodness. In our finite minds, we struggle with how can justice be loving? And I can't give you a simple answer to that other than the fact that God is perfect in all his being. And there is no conflict with him. How many of the frustrations of our life come about because we are composed of pieces, parts, and we, um, we are conflicted? And God, with God, there is no such conflict. Um, I promise some Latin before I forget. Uh, the aspect that God is one, that there is no other, is the unitas singularitas. And you get that, the fact that God is singular. There is but one God. And the understanding that God is united in his being and he is simple in his essence, that is the unitas simplicitas. So you've got to appreciate scholars who can take a word like simple and turn it into something like simplicitas. So... Um, But we all have our gifts, right? So um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 calls us to recognize that there is but one God. And uh, but, but, um, the scriptures also affirm the unity of his being, the simplicity of his being. And I think that's um, more clear in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth... As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom 
we exist. What helps us to understand the simplicity of God from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, is particularly there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Now, I hope that you, your appetite is whetted um, with the study of the attributes of God and you will desire to continue to study the unity of God, the simplicity of God. And when you do, let me give you a warning. You may get some headaches. It will be challenging. Uh, I have found that um, actually in, in um, I think, I guess it was Thomas Aquinas who gave me most of that, ow, right there. Um, and yet, uh, reformed scholastics have um, interacted richly with, with him on, on this doctrine of the simplicity of God. And of course, as has it has been already said and will be said again in conclusion, the fact that we cannot wrap our heads around the perfection of God is, of course, to be humbling to us. And the sooner we get over being frustrated about that, the sooner we'll simply adore and love and trust more fully and serve. Well, um, just like in so many courses of study, there are cliff notes and things that are helpful. And um, I, I was uh, greatly helped by something that's online, available online in Ordained Servant. It's an article entitled, The Doctrine of Divine Simplicity, A Pastor's Appreciation. And uh, D. Scott Meadows, um, this, his essay here, it's, again, it's available online and um, Ordained Servant. And he is giving kind of a summation, not a book review so much, but a summation of a work by Dr. James Dolezal. Uh, The title of the book, God Without Parts, Divine Simplicity and the Metaphysics, easy for you to say, and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness. Again, catchy, you'll all remember that. Um, But you don't have to actually, because all you have to do, if you Google the simplicity of God, Oddly enough, there's not thousands of people um, competing with one another to wax eloquent on the doctrine of the unity of God or the simplicity of God. So um, it comes up pretty quick at the top there. Uh, So we see the fact that, again, God is not a composite being. He's not a conflicted being. He's, He's the one from whom are all things. And so many scholars with far more IQ points and greater sanctification than myself able to make clear that what we learn from this, we we can know that God is that first cause, that there is no one before God. He is eternal, and we can know that because of the simplicity of his being. Because figure this, if, if God were, like you and me, of component parts, well, that which is of component parts often has to have someone, something, that assembles those parts. Something before, something prior, which would bring together all the little atoms and and quarks and bring them together for the material being. But God's word assures us that that he is the one from whom all things are made. There is no one behind him. And essential to that understanding 
is the simplicity of his essence. You probably didn't walk in here thinking, the simplicity of God, I cannot wait. This is going to be great. And I hope that as you leave, you think, Lord God, I have not known you as well as I ought to. I have not loved you as well as I ought to because I did not recognize the immensity of your being, your staggering perfection. And Lord God, please don't let me just sit back and think, okay, that was enough. Yeah, I was stretched a bit. But that when you go home, you'll you'll continue to pursue this. And the Lord will stretch you and grow you. And that you'll be able to say with, with authenticity to family and friends, I have grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and doctrines that I was completely unaware of. Enliven my heart and make me want to be a better disciple and a faithful child of my Heavenly Father. I mentioned um, Thomas Aquinas as one who has been pretty significant in unpacking this doctrine, and Reformed scholastics um, have uh, interacted with him. Aquinas considered six uh, varieties, uh, or what might be considered potential varieties in God, and uh, then disallows them. And let me say, by way of confession, and also for your encouragement. Again, this is challenging, and, it's ch- and, and all, that, all that will help us to grow will be challenging. So if we find ourselves wrestling with this, that's okay. Be encouraged. You're growing. But as a confession, and for your encouragement, I offer that. You know, there are systematic theologies that are called elenctic theologies, and in them, they don't just say, this is the doctrine. But they say, this is what scripture says, this is what reason says, and we hold these positions as opposed to false views. Well, there were a couple of times, and let me say that as I realized, again, I was in deep water here and I was studying things that really had been a long time uh, that I had really been working on a better understanding of the simplicity of God. I was encouraged when I went back to my Burkhoff that at least I had highlighted and underlined significant portions on the unity and the simplicity of God. So yes, I had studied that before, but it had been a while. But I figured, okay, I need to grow in this, and that means I should not just read, and let's recognize, because we're Orthodox Presbyterians, we all have our theological heroes, right? And we all, we all have the, go, the go-to volume or volumes, and we have those that, well, that's for other saints. I don't really need that. I've got my heroes, right? I've got my go-to guys. So I figured out I cannot just have my go-to guys. I need to read a little more broadly. So um, I won't mention names, but um, I can think of two particularly where both treating this doctrine of the simplicity of God, the unity of God, in that atlantic fashion of saying, this is what we affirm and this is what we disallow. And I would read the, this is what we affirm, and I would say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I can see that. I think I see that. Yeah, I see that. And then I would read the next paragraph, and I would think, well, well this, is, this is a challenge, but I, I guess that's right. And then the author would say, and this we completely disallow. <laughs> simple, simple. 
so if you have that experience, it's okay. Because it means you're submitting to the God who is infinitely wise, that he would cause you to grow in a greater appreciation of him. I, I love what Pastor Gorell said. Um, the human heart is completely conflicted and misplaced. He didn't use those words, but that's what was behind it when he said, man wants, there are ways man does not want to be like God. The human heart naturally does not want to be good. But there are other ways that the bent human heart wants to be like God, wants to be infinite, wants to be omnipotent, wants to be omnipresent. How many times have you been frustrated because you can't be at a daughter's recital, a son's volleyball game, and an aunt's you name it, event. Uh, We are conflicted because we are finite, and we would like to be in so many places at once, and and our fallen creatureliness resents that. And we need to repent of that. So, So when we feel so shallow in our understanding, that should again encourage us to recognize how great our God is and how he's completely sufficient and he can be completely trusted. Well, I mentioned that Aquinas, again, has given me more than a couple of headaches. But uh, there are a couple of... uh, I'll look at three points because I think we have time for it. Uh, Three points where uh, Calvin says we need... Calvin. Well, now you know who my hero is. Uh, So... uh, um, We recognize that God is not composed of bodily parts. And, of course, he goes to Scripture, uh, as we're going to go to uh, later this morning, um, and as we did last night, John 4, 24, that Jesus declares that God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And remember that when Jesus, after the resurrection, met with the disciples in Luke 24, verse 39, said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the takeaway from this is Jesus um, has uh, a full human nature there. He's standing there in the resurrection body. But he makes a contrast between the components of his resurrection body and, and the essential being of spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. A spirit, the most pure spirit, is not a, one who is becoming in his components, but is a being in perfection. And again, what leads us to understand that God is one being, perfect in his essence, without components or parts, is that if God had a body, he would require a unifying principle of actuality that would bring all of those components together. And um, I think it was Brother Matthews who simplified that by saying, a needy God is an ontological impossibility. Now I have to admit, I like Pastor Grell's um, offering of a bumper sticker. God is God and you are not. But may I offer as a runner-up, 
that a needy God is an ontological impossibility. Uh, I think that would humble your friends and family and neighbors as they saw that, uh, whether it's on a truck or a Yugo or whatever. Um, our God is not needy. And he's not needy because he is eternal. And the fact that he is eternal is evident because he is simple in his being and he's not one of component parts. Because again, parts are conflicting and parts rub and there's friction and there's disintegration. But there's no imperfection with the true and living God in that way. There's no imperfection with the true and living God. So this, and, uh, so clearly God, his divine being, has no bodily parts. But there's also not uh, any conflict in the divine being in terms of matter and form. Now, I mentioned earlier that as a potter, occasionally, again, I'm a fairly good potter. I've won awards. But, um, but occasionally I have problems, and there's, there's challenges between me and the clay, and I have an idea in my mind of what I want this matter to become in taking a form. The potential of that lump to be a vase or a platter. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, because I'm a being of component parts and there's conflict and there's challenges uh, there. But there is no potentiality with God in that sense. There's not a there's not a possibility that he might desire to be one thing but then almost get there. He is perfect in all of his attributes. He is all of his attributes and none of them are in conflict or in opposition to one another. Again, you and I need when we ever think that his love is opposed to his justice or vice versa, we need to repent of that and put that out of our minds and remember his love is perfect in its justice and wisdom and goodness. And all of his attributes share in such a perfection. Uh, I mentioned that um, I'm a potter. There are some other potters. Um, and that there are a variety of potters. And if you were going to kind of classify things, you could say that, yes, there are, there's not just one potter, in this room even, not one potter in this state or one potter in this nation. Um, and there are many different types of potters. We, we would say that there's a genus of potters and a species of potters um, in the sense that some like to do hand building, some like to do work on the wheel, some like to do a wood fire kiln, some like to do raku firing. Um, there are, there's a variety of, you might say, species of potters, or maybe I should have stuck with my original analogy of that there's the genus of uh, dogs and a variety of species, right? So we can all say that there's something, there's, there, we know what a dog is, and although some of us may disagree that a chihuahua is a dog, um, but we all know that uh, a husky is a dog, and uh, a poodle is a dog, I guess, depending upon, well, anyway. You understand. So I, I know I'm getting into sensitive territory, so I should be careful. Um, but so there's a type, and then there are many uh, derivatives of that. But that's, there's no such classification with God. It's not that there are many gods. He is the, the living one um, of Israel. No, but even when, think of Think of the testimony of Rahab in Joshua 2. As, as God is on the move 
to bring his people into the promised land, the pagan inhabitants of Canaan, their hearts melt with fear. That's, that's the testimony of Rahab. Our hearts melted with fear when we heard what you had done to the Amorite kings, the kings of, the, of Amalek. Our hearts melted with fear because you are the God of, your God is the God of heaven and earth. Rahab, with her neighbors in Jericho, knew what it was to have a regional deity, an idol that was the God of the house, the God of the hearth, the God of the city, but not a God who would be infinite in all capability to care for his people, not a God who is God of heaven and earth. That was a, a God of a different order, a different character. And yes, there's a Latin expression for that, sui generis. God is in a class by himself. There is no other like him. Again, if you are tempted to covet, if you are tempted to think, there's a, there's a safer place right now where I can put my investment in my life, my emotions. Repent, because the Lord alone is to be perfectly trusted. He is omnicompetent. So, and I have to remember that my son, who reads more G.K. Chesterton than I do, had wanted me to pass on this uh, favorite anecdotal story that um, Chesterton tells a story that he knew of a woman who picked up a volume of theology on the head of the simplicity of God. And she picked it up and she thumbed it through it in about two minutes. She set it down and she said, well, if that's the simplicity of God, I don't think I want to meet the complexity of God. <laughs> it is a challenging doctrine, to be sure. But in God is simple in his being, and our thoughts and our language about him are not. The, the doctrine of divine simplicity affirms that our language about God is analogical. We can't speak of him exactly as he is because his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. So high is he in the heavens. All we can do is in humility receive his revelation, take that to heart and adore him. To recognize in humility his being is incomprehensible, ineffable, inexpressible in words except by analogy. We can talk about him by way of analogy, but we just recognize that all of our words fall short. So great is our God. Well, I promised that I would um, revisit that quote that Brother Schroeder and I want to share, or do share. And it's, um, it's amazing it begins with uh, the note that Charles Spurgeon, of his 3,561 3, published sermons, his first, his very first was entitled, The Immutability of God. Maybe that says something about the theological maturity of previous generations and how we could grow. 
That text, uh, the text for that sermon was Malachi 3, verse 6. I am the Lord God. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Spurgeon begins by extolling a Christian study of the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. Calling this the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God. Spurgeon goes on to say, There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with a thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild donkey. And with a solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Again, Spurgeon is not saying here that you might simply learn some facts of theological acumen here that you would know, that you would learn, and that you would live to the glory of our God. Well, to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, be all glory and honor and wisdom and power forever. Amen. Well, we have seven minutes for you to ask questions of Al and Reverend Wagner. So, no, it's easy. I made, can I tap them on? Uh, there was a game show. You could tap on someone for assistance, and I will be going to you. Um, any questions? Did, uh, again, I, would, I wanted to refer you to, uh, um, I think I made it uh, just a quick reference to it, The Doctrine of Divine Simplicity, a Pastor's Appreciation. There is also online, well, uh, there's that uh, work by... Uh, Dr. Dolezal, um, but there's uh, that, um, and it is, uh, what is to be appreciated is, is that it uh, is simple, and even someone like myself uh, can, can grow from it and appreciate it. It is that accessible, and uh, simply the title, Why Divine Simplicity Matters, that by James Dolezal, and he's a, a, a Reformed Baptist brother, so we can praise God. Uh, for the diversity of, of the Lord's gifts uh, through the breadth of his church. Well, again, um, any other questions? Yes. Um, in reading, and I guess reading about the subject, were there descriptions of God's simplicity in being that were not helpful? Or Well, uh, what I have to admit I, I struggle with, um, I mean, we all have our, 
our strengths and weaknesses, and I, and I think um, the Lord fashions us with certain temperaments and uh, whatever, gifts. Um, for me, I, I love uh, what, what is my delight and my joy is studying the scriptures and, and working through that exegetically, exegetically that I would see the promise of the Redeemer from uh, Genesis to his glorification in uh, Revelation. I love uh, to see that unity of the scriptures. And uh, it is more of a challenge for me to work through rational deductions. And so there was, it was challenging. Um, there, are, there are works that you actually can flip page after page after page, and you don't come across a single scripture reference. And that was, I have, for me, coming from where I am, disheartening. Um, it was more helpful to me when I could hang what is being said on God's word. And I recognize it comes from God's word, and they're not just saying, this is what we believe, and let's tack on some scripture with it. Uh, so that was, that was a, a challenge, I would say. Uh, again, uh, an exhortation in, in recognizing the majesty of God and his perfection, to recognize his complete trustworthiness. If we think of him in a fractured way, if we think of him as being compartmentalized, made up of parts, we won't have the trust and the confidence in him that scripture calls us to and provides for us when we recognize his, his character and the, and the perfection of it. So, so um, I think the, the greatest lesson here is to be in awe of him, to be humbled before him, and to trust him. And oddly enough, I think that's been said before this week. Um, but again, these attributes, you know, as it's been said, and will be uh, said again through the week, that these attributes are not in competition or in conflict, they are interpenetrating. And so um, there will probably be some reference to the unity of God in future uh, messages. Uh, and we'll continue to interact with one another as we appreciate this doctrine helps me understand this as well. Yes, Alexander. Right. Uh, the singularity is the fact that numerically there is one God. And uh, there again, uh, Pastor Gorel, you know, um, he, he, because he has the Holy Spirit, he exercised self-control. He could have read a whole lot more of Isaiah 40 through 48, which is a wonderful passage, as he noted in the context of having uh, an acquaintance, a friend who is uh, a Latter-day, uh, considers himself a Latter-day Saint, that is a wonderful passage for, for those who are in the delusion that you can become a god or that there are a multitude of gods to go through Isaiah and hear the Lord say again and again, is there a god before me or after me or beside me? I know none. And, and he, he says it so, uh, so regularly, so, so consistently, so uh, powerfully. And um, in, in the context of that, what I love, uh, and, um, and I get to the second part, but in, in terms of this, that there is one God. Again, none of this is just so that we'll learn more facts. This is food for the soul. Listen to Isaiah 43, 11. 
I am I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. God isn't just saying, I'm God. I'm, only, I'm the only one. He can't help, but as he speaks of himself, he identifies his character as Savior. Or as he does in Isaiah 44, verse 8, Fear not, nor be afraid, have I not told you from of old and declared it, you are my witness. Is, is there a God beside me? There is no rock, I know not any. In between the question, is there a God beside me? And the answer, I know not any. There is that declaration, there is no rock. God isn't simply saying, there's not another God. There's not another divine being. He says, he takes the opportunity to speak of his character. There is not another rock, and what that means is, he is the rock. He is that one solid, steady, reliable foundation for your life and mine. Everything else, as you and I have sung before, is shifting sand. The Lord alone, he is the rock. So let's say, again, as we do this theology, marvel at the character of our God, that we would adore him. So that's the intent of that. So there's the pop quiz. Unitatis singularitatis, and the unitatis simplicitatis, right? Or the simplicity of God. Okay, I'll stop being silly. So the simplicity of God is the fact, again, that he is of one essence. He's not part love, part wisdom, part holiness, part justice, part mercy, part compassion. You know, if you... Sadly, even in the breadth of the church, we have family in the Lord who would say... God has the attributes of holiness and justice, but he is love. And do you recognize what a cartoon conception of God that is? He's not just our favorite attribute that we want to latch on to, but he is all of them in perfection. So the, 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 the simplicity of God speaks to the fact that he is not a God, uh, a being of component parts. He is perfect in his essence, and he is all of his attributes. Nothing stuck to him. He's not conflicted. Well, either you're all in awe and wonder, or you recognize that I'm going over time. So, I, isn't it, is it is 10.30? Is that when I? Yeah. Very good. 